true of all of us. We start thinking back to whenever we were small and uh, how it was back then and relive those times. Uh, that's especially true when it comes to the, to the tree because, as, as some of you have heard me tell before, every year Dad and I would go out and get the tree, and we didn't go buy a tree. We went out and we joined that with a hunting trip. And so we'd go, we would go hunting, and uh, while we were hunting, we'd get a tree and uh, usually just shoot it down, just, you know, enough shotgun shells to take down anything. And so we'd, uh, whenever we got through, got through hunting, we'd shoot down a Christmas tree and take that back. And mom would, uh, mom would, you know, give us the instructions and she'd pop the popcorn and me and sis would take a needle and thread and start threading that and putting the popcorn all around the tree. But, Ever since I was a kid, I had this thing about trees. If I had a dollar for every hour I've spent sitting in a tree, I'd, I'd be a rich man because I, I spent a lot of hours sitting up in trees. It was just something fascinating to me about, about trees. And uh, I remember even as, as, a, as a boy that... I think I shall never see, uh, uh, see, how, how does it go? I think I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And, uh, there's just something that's almost magical about a, about a tree. But, but I'm not the only one that feels that way because all down through history, people have had this fascination with trees. In fact, many, many years before Christ, in fact, they would take trees, evergreens especially, and they would use those as decorations in the home. Uh, and then many years later, in Germany, I'm told, was the, uh, was the first practice of a Christmas tree. Uh, that tradition started there. And Martin Luther, while he was walking on a winter evening and he was composing a sermon and as he was walking along, Martin Luther uh, was looking, you know, at the the stars twinkling and the ice on the trees. And, and so consequently, when he got home, he got the idea of putting lighted candles on trees. And so... I often wondered how many trees burned down before they perfected that, but but that's what they did, and now you can see where it's gone to today. Now, the strange thing about all of this is that, and this will be surprising maybe to a lot of young people, but the fact of the matter is early Christians here in America and other places strongly opposed even the observance of Christmas. Did you know that? I mean, they made laws against it. I'm talking about here in our country even. And uh, there were those that strongly opposed it. And I, I have preacher friends who refused to celebrate Christmas, refused to have anything to do with the Christmas tree. And both, I mean, they just get all bent out of shape if you tell them, you know, you, you've got a Christmas tree in your house. That is highly offensive to them. Well, you know, I, I've never seen that much wrong with it myself. I, you know, I don't worship that Christmas tree. You know, it's not a, not an idol that I bow down to or anything like that. Uh, but anyway, it's a big deal to them. And that's all right. If they want to feel that way, I, 
you know, I, I just a bit resent them trying to make certain rules and regulations for me to live by. If they don't want a tree, that's fine. They don't have to have a tree. Now, maybe you're wondering, what in the world has this got to do with the message? Well, more than you think, because I'm going to preach this morning about the first Christmas tree. The first Christmas tree. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 1. Matthew chapter number 1. Christmas is over, but there is no end to the lessons that we ought to learn from it. Christmas was a celebration that ought to give us certain counsel as to how we conduct ourselves and as to the things that God is able to do in our life. Now, verse 1 says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, verse 17. I'll spare you the misery of trying to pronounce all of the words in the genealogy. Some of you are going to think that anyway, so I might as well confess it right at the beginning. So all of the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David into the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. I suspect that this is the most unread section of the New Testament. Because most people are just not interested in genealogies, and it's, you know, just the way that we are. No one, I've never had anyone come to me and say, oh, I read the first 17 verses of Matthew, and I'm so excited about that, you know. It was so thrilling. I got so much out of it. And yet it is as much the Word of God as any other part of the Bible. It's just as true as any part of the Bible. But in ancient times, they had a far different view of genealogies. The genealogy of a person was extremely important and crucial to their inheritance, their privileges, and their obligations. So it was of necessity that they kept track of their genealogy. And uh, maybe we ought to be more concerned about that. I know there are those, you know, that... Uh, they get on these certain websites where they can trace back their family heritage and learn all about it. And I, I've always been kind of maybe afraid to do that and find out. I, I know Bell Star is in that list uh, back there somewhere. So I thought I'd leave well enough alone because they might have Jack the Ripper in there. And uh, I, some things I, I don't want to know. I mean, kind of like, you know, the one prominent family that hired a professional biographer to read their family tree and they gave him careful instructions about Uncle George. And Uncle George in a drunken stupor had murdered a man and gone to prison and finally was put to death in the electric chair. And they said, I, we, we, you know, our, look, our family reputation is at stake. You've got to be really careful. Handle this with kid gloves. We don't want to embarrass our family. He said, there's no problem whatsoever. I know exactly what to say. And this is what he wrote. Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics <laughs> at an important government institution. He was attached to the position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. So, so I guess, 
you know, there's a way to get around it, I guess, but... But whenever we think about the genealogy of Christ, it is a much more serious matter. And I say that because the Messiah had to be of the lineage of David, and this was a fact that needed to be established. And so here in the genealogy of Jesus, we see the first Christmas tree. This is the history, making the connection, showing that he was indeed of the seed of David. Notice there are five things I want to quickly mention before I get to the message, and this is all important, five things that we see here. We see His name, which is Jesus, and that simply means Savior. We see His title is Christ, that is the Anointed One, He's the Messiah. We see that He's called the Son of David, And although Abraham is mentioned first here, or Abraham came first, David is mentioned first because of the fact that Matthew is writing mainly to the Jewish people and establishing the lineage back to David. But then he's called the son of Abraham, and so that is not excluded from the information in any way whatsoever. But what I want you to notice is the fifth thing, and that is that that in all of this we see how God used a variety of different people to accomplish His purpose. I said a few moments ago that Christmas is more than just a celebration to make us feel good. Christmas ought to be a reminder of some things. Christmas ought to provide us the counsel that we need to conduct ourselves in the best way possible. And so we ought to learn something from it. And, I, and this morning, as we consider this first Christmas tree, I want you to think about all of the different kinds of people that God uses. First of all, and most obvious, is the fact that God uses faithful people. You know, there are a lot of folks that think, well, I, I wish I had as much talent as so-and-so. If I could just do that or, you know... Uh, boy, then God could really use me. Or if I had a charming personality like so-and-so, then I could really be used to the Lord. If I had the gift of gab or whatever it is, let me tell you, all you've got to do to be used of God is to be faithful. That's all. You be faithful doing what you can where you are, and God can and will use you. And as we look at this genealogy, we see several names of people that were faithful. We see Abraham, for example, and the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 and verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out not knowing whether he went. It takes a lot of faith to do something like that. And whenever God decided that he was going to raise up a nation to represent him among all of the nations of the earth, he chose Abraham, because he knew that Abraham would be faithful. And then the list goes on and on. There's Isaac, there's Jacob, there's Ruth, David, Solomon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, all of those that we could comment on, all of those to whom the Bible ascribes faithfulness. God uses faithful People. In fact, the Bible says, moreover, brethren, it's required in stewards that a man be found 
faithful. If you're faithful, God will use you. It's not a matter of you being able to do what you enjoy. It's a matter of you doing what God has chosen for you. And God uses us all in different ways. We don't all have the same gifts and the same ability. We don't all have the same opportunity. God uses us in different ways. And don't you ever try to judge your importance by what you do as compared to what somebody else does. God, in His wisdom and for whatever reason, chose to use me to preach. But God doesn't call everyone to preach or to pastor a church. We have deacons, we have other officers in the church, we have teachers in the church, we have those that are gifted whenever it comes to musical ability, those that are gifted whenever it comes to things of technology that work in the sound room, those that have administrative skills. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, all of those involved in secretarial work and those involved in administration like Brother Ron and different ones that God has gifted in those areas. And listen, whatever you do, it's not a matter of you picking and choosing what you would like to do. It's a matter of you finding out what God wants you to do and then be faithful. And if you're faithful, God will use you. And that's all that ought to really matter, to know that God has used you according to His will. God uses faithful people. But the amazing thing when we look at this story because we all would suspect that God would use faithful people, right? But when we look at this story, we see that God uses fallen people. As Matthew makes this list, he doesn't pull any punches. He tells it like it is, and he mentions the good and the bad and the ugly, the failures as well as those that are faithful. You look in this list and you see the name of Judah. Here was a, here was a man who in addition to all of his other faults, here's a man who unknowingly hired the service of his son's widow as a prostitute who then gave birth to twins. How'd you like to have a slimy record like that? To think that you had stooped so low as to even hire the service of a prostitute, and then find out that it's your own daughter-in-law, and then, and then end up that she's pregnant and she has twins. And then on that list you'll find the name of Rahab. Rahab just happened to be a harlot. And yet she is included in that list. Now listen, don't any of you get the wrong idea about what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's all right for you to be a prostitute, a drunkard, a dopehead, a thief, or anything else. Don't worry about it because God's going to use you anyway. That's not what I'm saying. She was, she was a harlot, but she didn't remain that. I'm just trying to get you to see that even though some people have fallen to the lowest of depths, that it's possible for them to recover and for God to use them. We see Ahaz and we see Manasseh. Here's Judah's most wicked king that sacrificed his own son to pagan gods. Think about that. To sacrifice your own children to the gods of the heathen, and yet all of these people are included in this list. 
There are some folks, no doubt, that think, you know what, God can never use me because of my past record. You know, I've done this and that. I have so messed up. I have so ruined my life that it's impossible for me to ever really be used of God. No, it's not. No, it's not. God can use you regardless of who you are and what you've done if you're willing to be used of God. God uses those that are faithful. God uses those that are fallen. But God also uses those that are forgotten. Whenever you begin to read this list, and there may be many others, but I know of at least nine different names contained here that are not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And then we see other names here of people that, well, we've probably never even heard of. Names of people mentioned here that uh, of whom we know nothing about. We, we don't have any record of their, uh, their uh, great accomplishments or anything like that. They, these are just forgotten people. But they're all branches on that first Christmas tree. Are you getting the message? These people are forgotten. They are people that are totally unimportant as far as the world is concerned. These are nobodies. But God's able to take a nobody and make somebody out of them. And so all of these people in some way were connected with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Totally unknown to them years before He was born... And yet these people, with all of their faults and failures, all became a part of that first Christmas tree that brought Christ into the world. Now what do we make of all of this? I don't know about you, but it's interesting to me to consider all of that. It's not only interesting, it is inspirational to me to think that God could do all of that. But what am I going to take away from it? What am I going to learn from it? How am I going to benefit from it? What's going to be the practical value of all of this? And I suggest there are three things that I want to leave with you. Three things that you should gain from this. Three lessons pertaining to God. First of all, God is active. He's active. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. You know, sometimes we get the feeling in the midst of all of our problems and our trials and our heartache and our misery, it just seems like the heavens are as brass and that God has gone to sleep or He's on vacation and, and He's surely not concerned about us. But that's just not true. You can go back all through history and you'll discover that history is His story. God has been involved in absolutely everything that has ever happened, and nothing can stop God from working out His plan. One writer, uh, whose name I have forgotten, said, This genealogy is marked by gross sin, blatant idolatry, captivity in Egypt, captivity in Babylon, a succession of flawed kings and hostile enemies, yet God's plan is carried out to completion. It is as if God is saying, 
The famine in Egypt could not starve my plan. 400 years of slavery in Egypt and another 70 in Babylon could not shackle my plan. Murder, corruption, and idolatry could not stop my plan. Don't ever forget God has a plan. And you can't stop Him. God is bigger than all of your problems and He has a plan for your life and He is at work to bring about the desired end. Isn't it encouraging to know that that God is active in your life? That He's doing something. Even when it seems like, you know, that everything is stagnant and nothing is happening and God is busy at work, active in your life. But not only is God active, whenever I look at this, first Christmas tree, I think God is amazing. I mean, how can you not stand in awe of God when you consider that He took all of these events that I've just mentioned and He used all of these people that we've just read about and He puts all of these things together to accomplish His purpose and you have to finally come to the conclusion He's amazing. He is amazing. Let me tell you why that is so very important because most of us, most of us, whenever we get disappointed, we get depressed. And whenever we get depressed, then we're defeated. We never accomplish anything when we're in a state of depression. That, that's when we want to throw up our hands in despair. That's when we want to quit. We want to give up. Simply because we just, you know, we just feel like our problem is bigger than our ability to cope with it. And seemingly, you know, that there's no way out of this problem. And I want you to understand that whenever you realize how amazing God is and the fact that God is active in your life, that with Him all things are possible. It'd be good if we had time this morning to talk more about Mary and to think about the message of the angel to Mary and how impossible all of that seemed. And how difficult it must have seemed to her. I mean, not only the fact that she was a virgin and going to give birth to a child, but to think about the fact that society as a whole would not believe her It might even be that her life would be in jeopardy. And in spite of all of that, she says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. In other words, Lord, whatever you want to to do, that's fine with me. And whenever we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, when we live every day of our life amazed by His greatness, it enables us to cope with those disappointments. It enables us to get through those difficult times because we have a God that's bigger than all of our problems, greater than all of our needs. So God is amazing and God is available also. You know, it's one thing, if God just showed Himself strong and amazing by the mighty works that He does. In other words, we think about creation and we look up there in the starry sky at night and we think about the wisdom and the power of God, the fact that He created all of this, and we say, oh, what an amazing God that He is. 
Or we think about the fact that not only did God create it all, but God's controlling it all, so God is active. Yet all of that would be meaningless to us in a personal way were it not for the fact that God is available. None of us are included in this genealogy. I guess you noticed that, right? Your name not on the list there anywhere. Your name's not included in the genealogy, but I want you to know that God has a place for you. His grace, His grace has made it possible for us to be accepted into the family of God. That's why He said in Ephesians 1 and verse number 6, He tells us there that, that we are accepted in the Beloved. In other words, it's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that God is willing to accept us. We talked last week about the fact that He came. He, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end and the first and the last. He, Jesus Christ, the Savior, He came into this old sinful world. He came in order to save us. He didn't come to make the world a better place to live. He came in order to save us. And then the one who came unto us said, Come unto me in Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me. I said last week, that's the most glorious invitation possible. To think about the Lord Himself saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, we're talking about the fact that God is available. He's available because He came. And He's available because He who came says, Come unto Me. And then in John, He says, He that cometh unto Me, I will in no wise cast out. You can come to Him like the old invitation hymn, Just as I am without one plea, but that Thy blood was shed for me. I'm telling you, folks, if we live every day of our life with those three things in mind, it'll change the way that we live. Knowing that God, an amazing God, is active in our life and available for whatever our need is. Just knowing that. Having that blessed assurance that it's true, it's true because God has promised that it's so. And knowing that, totally transforms our attitude and changes our life. He's available. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I want you to know He's available this morning. If you're willing to receive His Son, He'll receive you. Like the song says, I am a poor rich man. You have no idea how bad off you are if you're not a child of God. If you're here, you listen, if you're here and highly educated, if you're here and you have great wealth untold, you're here and you are strong in body and sound in mind, you have more friends than anybody else that you know, it seems like you have the world by the tail on a downhill swing and everything's going your way, you don't have a problem in the world. But if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are in a horrible condition. I've had people say, you know, well, preacher, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not as bad. I'm not, I'm not as bad as I could be. And my answer is, you may not be as bad as you could be, but you're as bad off as you could be. 
You couldn't be in a worse condition than what you are without Jesus Christ. And He is available this morning. And He who came will receive you and save you today. And, and those of us that know the Lord is our Savior, I'm telling you, we ought to be embarrassed the way that we behave sometimes. Sometimes we go around moping about like God is dead. And we need to rediscover the greatness of God, how amazing He is, and to understand that He is at work in our life right now, this very second. He's at work in our life, available to meet our needs. And if we trust Him, He promised He would. And He's never failed yet. Amen. He didn't fail. He didn't fail when the prophets foretold, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Amen. He didn't fail. He kept His promise. And He'll keep His promise to you today also. Let's stand together. Father, how we thank You, Lord, for not only the information, but we thank You for the, for the challenge and the inspiration that we receive from Your Word. And Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that You're willing to receive us when there is absolutely nothing in our life that is worthy of consideration. When there's nothing about us that would obligate You to ever receive us and yet to know because of what Jesus did on the cruel cross at Calvary that You're willing to receive us and to forgive us, to accept us into Your family and I pray today for that man, woman, or some boy or girl here in the service this morning. They've never received Christ as their Savior. May they this morning understand what a horrible condition they're in. And may they, may they begin to understand what great possibilities there are if they would but receive Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Lord, we don't deserve anything, and so we can't obligate you this morning, but Lord, we come begging all of this in Jesus' dear name that you'll save some lost soul, that you'll bring some wayward child home, that you'll encourage some some downcast Christian this morning, that you'll do something, anything, everything to magnify your name that when we leave here, that we'll leave here thinking about your goodness and your greatness, for we ask it all in Jesus' name.